Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 9. Uh, we are back in John this morning after, uh, as I mentioned earlier, after a, a four-week uh, break. Uh, and we are looking this morning at John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Before we read that together, let's pray together. Our Father, we, we need to hear from you this morning. Uh, we need to hear your voice. We need to hear you speaking in the scriptures. Uh, we need to hear your word. We need to hear your gospel. We need to hear of your son. Uh, we need that afresh every day, but we need it uh, especially this morning as we draw near to you together. So we pray, Father, that you would pour out your spirit on us, that you would open our ears and uh, open our minds and open our hearts that we would understand and that we would receive what we hear this morning in your word. We pray that you would speak to us through it, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 9, uh, verses 1 through 7. As Jesus passed by, he saw a, blind, a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he, he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Why? Why me? Why us? Why now? Why this? It's a question we ask often. When uh, the planes crashed into the Twin Towers on September 11th, 2001, the nation was asking, why? When COVID-19 brought commerce and vacations and work and life to a halt in 2020, the world was asking, why? When people of color are gunned down in the streets, people ask, why? When personal tragedy strikes, job loss, illness, abuse, death of a loved one, we naturally ask, why? There are always those who are ready with an answer, especially those ready to blame. Sometimes that blame is political, leveled at government programs and politicians. Sometimes that blame is personal, leveled at individuals around us. Sometimes that blame is spiritual. It's God's fault. He's not good. Or it's your fault, you've sinned and God is punishing you in some way. Or it's my fault, I sinned and now I, I need to make atonement. We're always looking for scapegoats for our problems. We want answers. And answers more often than not mean blame. To whom can we pass the buck? In our text this morning, the disciples ask a question. Who sinned that this man was born blind? They want to know why. 
They want to know whose fault. They want to know who to blame. It seems unlikely to blame this person because he was born this way after all, unless he sinned in utero somehow. But then who? His parents? Whose fault is it? Who is to blame? Jesus, of course, never plays our games. Rarely uh, he answers a question in the given parameters. Uh, Very often Jesus is given two options and he persistently chooses a third. Uh, So here, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? But it's not so simple, is it? It's not so clear cut. Well, we're going to look at this question of who sinned this morning, and uh, we're going to look at it under four headings. You can see them in your bulletin, in our outline. We'll look at the situation that there is tragic suffering in the world. We'll look at our presupposition that suffering is a result of personal sin. We'll look at uh, the scripture's correction that suffering is an opportunity to display God's works. And we'll look at the climax, that Jesus enters suffering and overcomes it. So first, the situation. There is tragic suffering in the world. We have to start here, and it might get painful. I I hesitate to bring it up because it's easy to wrestle with these questions in the abstract. It's not much of a wrestle, really. But what about when it hurts? And we all hurt at, at some point. Where do you hurt? Where do you experience loss or illness or abuse or bitterness, dashed hopes or unfulfilled dreams, relational, vocational, or familial brokenness? It may be big and deep, or it may be small and trivial. As I was writing these words, and it was a a few weeks ago now, Deborah called to tell me that the transmission went out on our car a week before we were to leave for our summer vacation. It's not deep, but it wasn't small either in the moment. You know where you hurt. You know what's painful in your life. Verse one says, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Blind from birth. Uh, Scripture often tells us how long something has gone on. Uh, the, The longer, the more tragic. The longer, the more pain. Uh, In John 5, we met a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. In Mark 5, we meet a woman who had been bleeding for 12. In Acts 3, we meet a man lame from birth. And here Jesus sees a man born blind. A man who never saw the sun, never saw his mother's face, Never saw a leaf, a bug, a cloud in the sky. He was blind from birth. And Jesus is is leaving the temple when he sees this man. He's leaving the temple, you may remember, because the crowds had picked up stones to kill him. And on his way out, he passes a man, a blind man, a beggar. Uh, Beggars frequently came to the temple. It it makes sense. There was lots of foot traffic there and people who in that moment might be soft-hearted. And so not only is this man blind, but he is poor. A beggar, verse 8 tells us. And Jesus, in this moment, is escaping a violent mob. He must have evaded them enough, though, because when he passes by this man, blind from birth, he seems to slow down. 
And I love how scripture so often mentions that Jesus sees people. It doesn't just say that Jesus passed by a blind man, but that Jesus saw him. He notices him. He sees people in their distress. And that's nothing new. God always takes notice of his people in their distress. That's how the Exodus begins. You may remember in Exodus chapter 2, we're told God heard the groaning of his people in slavery, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God hears our cries. He sees our distress, and he knows. Sometimes it feels as if God is deaf and blind, that he doesn't know or that he doesn't care. But that's not the case. Jesus here sees this man born blind. And whatever hardship you are going through, let's just start by acknowledging that there is suffering in the world. Everything from minor scrapes and bruises to unspeakable loss and loneliness, sickness and pain. But even as we acknowledge that in the same breath, remember that God notices. Jesus sees the blind man. God saw his people in slavery. And Father and Son see you. They see you. They know what's going on in your life. And they care. And yet, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. Point one is simply the situation. There is tragic suffering in the world. Point two, uh, our presupposition that suffering is a result of personal sin. Jesus' disciples notice the blind man too, uh, though we're not told that they see him in the same way. Uh, sometimes we as Christians don't see people as well as Jesus does. And I'm sorry for that, but we, we get busy, right? We get wrapped up in our own lives. We don't see one another. We don't see others. We need to practice seeing the way Jesus does. Uh, but they at least notice him, this blind man, and they ask in verse 2, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now notice the options in their mind. Somebody's got to be at fault here. Either this man sinned or his parents. Somebody is guilty. Somebody is to blame. This is their presupposition, right? That suffering is a result of personal sin. The religious leaders think the same thing, by the way. Uh, later in the chapter, in verse 34, they will say to this man, you were born in utter sin. Don't lecture us. Why do we insist on blaming someone? Why must we point the finger? I think there's something good in this, something true. It's also something self-protective, self-justifying, and even something demonic about it, and also something a little bit prescient. We're going to go through each of those. Uh, first, there's something good. We recognize that this world has meaning. Things are not random. Uh, there is order, purpose, cause, and effect. We live in a moral universe, an orderly universe. We expect events to have reasons, and we search for those reasons. Our very desire for answers says something. We believe in an orderly universe. We expect events to have reasons, and so we wrestle with the big questions of life, like why? That's good. Second, there's something true here. Brokenness is not normal. It has a cause, and that cause is moral. 
This world was perfect in the beginning. There was no sickness, no loneliness, no loss, but sin changed that, which means sin is the cause. The problem is not that we identify sin as the cause of the ills of the world. The problem is that we think it is necessarily this sin or that sin, my sin or your sin. But the truth is, sin has broken this world, human sin to be sure. Because sin has broken this world, things like sickness, disease, and death exist. War and famine exist. I can't tie these things to an individual's sin or a nation's sin or a culture's sin necessarily. I can't say 9-11 happened because or COVID-19 happened because or your loved one got sick because. But we can trace it back to sin's presence in the world. That's true. So why do we insist on blaming? Well, uh, there's something good in that. We're looking for meaning. There's something true. There is a moral cause to the ills that we face. The third, there's something self-protective in this. Uh, The book of Job has 42 chapters dealing with uh, these issues. Tragedy upon tragedy fall on Job, and his friends come to comfort him. And they do pretty good for the first week uh, when they keep their mouths shut. Uh, But then they begin to talk. And the moment they open their mouths, they begin to blame. They blame Job. And why do they blame? This is what Job says in Job 6, 21. He says, for you have now become nothing. You see my calamity and are afraid. Job is saying they're no help at all. Rather than helping Job, they see Job's trial and are fearful for themselves. See, when we see bad things happen to other people, part of what happens is we get scared because we begin to think, am I next? But if we can pinpoint a cause, if we can assign blame, this happened because you did something wrong, then we can be in control. We can ensure it won't happen to us. We can avoid whatever it was that you did or do whatever it was that you didn't do. Your trouble is your fault. And as long as I don't do what you did, I won't end up where you are. So we think. And so there's something, something good here, something true. There's something self-protective in this question. Uh, but not only is blaming self-protective, it's also self-justifying. See, it, it, if it's your fault, you are where you are, right? If, if, if you're a, a bad person who does bad things, then I'm not where you are because I'm a good person. Sometimes we look down on people in trouble as if we were somehow better than them, and this proves it, right? And in in the ultimate irrational move that we'd never say this out loud, we at least think your trouble is your fault and my trouble is random and inexplicable. Now, some people might actually turn that around. If you are a particularly morbid and guilt-ridden person, you might say the other person's trouble is random and inexplicable, but my trouble is my fault. I caused it. If I hadn't done this or or done that, this wouldn't have happened to me. Now, can we cause trouble in our lives? Absolutely. Of course we can, right? Sometimes foolish behavior comes back to bite us. Sin does have consequences sometimes in this life. We can point these out when there is an obvious cause and effect. If, If you don't take care of your body, don't be surprised when your body begins to break down early. If you cheat on your wife, don't be surprised when your family falls apart. And yet sometimes bodies and families fall apart regardless of what we do. 
We are not always to blame when things fall apart. We are not, and we can't always take pride when they stay together. We want an explanation because explanations make us feel good. They, they make us feel in control. But Solomon reminds us in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 11, he, he says, under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. And yet we blame. Again, there's, there's something good about that, that the world does have meaning. There's something true, right? Trouble has come from the fall, from sin's presence in the world. Uh, there's something self-protective, though. If we can know why bad things happen, perhaps we can avoid those bad things. And there's something self-justifying, right? Bad things happen to you because you're a bad person. I'm a good person, which is why my life is so good, or we flip that around. There's also something demonic about this. The devil is the accuser of the brethren. That's what John tells us in Revelation 12, verse 10. In fact, the, the, the very name Satan means accuser or adversary. When we level accusations against people, when we are quick to blame, to shame, to guilt, we are doing the devil's job for him. Finally, in all of this, there's also something prescient. Uh, sin does not always receive its just desserts in this life. But present day consequences remind us that there are consequences. And one day, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The problem is not the connection between the, the, the moral and outcomes. The problem is that we think we can discern that connection in the moment, but we are not the judge. We don't have knowledge of what is going on behind the scenes. We don't know the whole picture. Job and his friends never did find out why he suffered as he did. We know from reading the book that it wasn't his fault, but they didn't know that. They didn't know the whole story. They didn't know what was going on behind the scenes. And so there is the situation, right, the fact of tragic suffering in the world. And there's, there's our presupposition that suffering is a result of personal sin. That if something bad happened to you, it, it must have been because you did something bad. Next, the correction. Jesus' correction. That suffering is an opportunity to display God's works. When we think we know why this or that is happening... Uh, we, we think we can draw the lines. We think we can connect the dots. But your job is neither to be Satan the accuser nor God the judge. And the truth is, because of our limited perspective, we often get it wrong. We just don't have all the information. Don't judge your neighbor, right? You, you don't know why he lost his job. Uh, you don't know why she got cancer. You don't know why their kids turned out as they did. And can I add this, right? Stop blaming yourself. Of course, accept responsibility for your sins. Confess them to God. Know that you are forgiven in Jesus. But stop assuming that, that your mistakes are the cause of all the bad that has ever happened in your life. You're thinking too highly of yourself. You're not the center of your universe. The world doesn't revolve around you. Well, the disciples ask in verse 2, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answers in verse 3, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. 
Jesus says, essentially, you're asking the wrong question. You're looking for blame rather than purpose, for cause rather than outcome. Uh, We've already seen that there is a cause for suffering in this world. This world has been broken by sin. Read through Genesis 3. Suffering is, in part, the curse of God on sin in general, before you or I ever got on the scene. Romans 8 tells us that creation groans in its bondage, awaiting the day when it will be freed from this curse. Yet Jesus doesn't explain any of that here. He doesn't go into that. He doesn't say, no, no, you misunderstand. Uh, It's not this man's sin or that sin. It's, It's Adam's sin, right? It's the original sin. It's all of our sin. He doesn't go into any of that. He simply says, essentially, you're asking the wrong question. Stop looking for cause. It's too late for that anyway. Start looking at the purpose. Why was this man born blind? So that the works of God might be displayed in him. Rather than lament the cause of the trouble, open your eyes to the opportunity. Now, two things should be said at this point. Uh, First, if we pay close attention to Jesus' words, he's not making a statement about all trouble everywhere. He's talking about this man born blind. And the works of God to be displayed in him are the specific works of the incarnate Jesus. Jesus goes on to say in verse 4 that there will come a day when he won't be able to do such things Uh, Jesus was then on earth as God in the flesh, but after his death, resurrection, and ascension, he would no longer be on earth in the flesh. Night was coming, Jesus says. So when Jesus says this man was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him, uh, Jesus clearly meant so that he, Jesus, God on earth in the flesh, could perform a miracle and so display God's work in that moment. So Jesus is first and foremost making, not making a general statement about all suffering everywhere. And yet I do think there is an analogy to all suffering. Jesus is not here in the flesh to miraculously take away your trouble. But that doesn't mean it's not a part of God's plan for God's glory in your life. Or we can put it positively. All suffering, all trouble, all trials, are all difficulty is a part of God's plan for his glory in your life. All trouble is that the glory of God might be displayed in it. Uh, One of my favorite movies is called Children of Men, and it's based off of an anti-abortion novel. It's a fantastic film. I'm not recommending it. Don't everybody go out and watch it afterwards, Uh, because it's also rather dark and violent. And yet the darkness and violence is is necessary for the story. There is a a moment in this film that I think is the most beautiful moment in any film. Uh, In fact, I I cry every time I see it, which, if you know me, isn't surprising because I cry every time I watch any movie. But in this movie in particular, I cry every time I see this scene because it's so beautiful. But if you took the darkness and the violence out of the movie, the scene would not move you. It's the darkness that shows the beauty for what it is. It's why jewelers display diamonds on black felt, right? It's the dullest, darkest thing they can find. And it highlights the sparkling beauty of the diamond. And friends, this is at least one of the purposes for suffering and sadness in the world. I'm not saying it's, it's the cause. We've already seen that. The cause is sin. But it is one of the great purposes 
Suffering, sadness, trial, and trouble are the backdrop that highlights the beauty of God in the gospel. God's grace is seen for what it is in light of sin and judgment and death. And the power and goodness and mercy of God are seen for what they are in light of suffering, pain, and brokenness. And too often we waste time in our suffering bemoaning its cause, known or unknown, rather than asking God, how are you going to glorify yourself in this? How are you going to show me your glory, your greatness, your beauty? Give me more of yourself, God, in the midst of my trouble. Now, the second thing we need to, to, to see at this point is answer an objection. Uh, you, you see, if the purpose of suffering is to highlight the grace of God, does that make God evil, selfish, using us as pawns for his ego trip? And there are two answers to this question. I'll deal with one here and the second in our last point. The first is, it depends on what you understand to be our highest good. If God is using our suffering for his self-promotion, and in the end, he is glorified and we are left battered and bruised, worse for the wear, then clearly this would be horrible. If our highest good were a happy life now, and God subverted that for his purposes... God would be seen as a monster, right? No one should believe in such a God. But our highest good is not a carefree life, right? It's not lollipops and gumdrops all the day long. Our highest good is to know and enjoy God's glory. That is, we were made for a relationship to enjoy God, his greatness, his love, his power, his person, to enjoy him. That is our greatest good. And this is what God wants to do. He wants to give us himself, show us himself, manifest himself, display his works in us. God wants to to ladle his grace into our souls like warm soup on a chilly day. He wants to cause us to delight in him like no lover has ever delighted in their beloved before. Do you want the, the greatest joy to be had? It's not found in created things. It's not found in health or wealth or worldly relationships. Those may be tokens of God's love at times, but God and his love is the greatest joy to be had. God wants to give us that. But sometimes, like in the movie Children of Men, the way of seeing that which is most beautiful is to juxtapose it with that which is most ugly. But that might bring up another question in your mind. Isn't there some other way? Uh, Is all of this really necessary? Which brings us to our last point, the climax, that Jesus enters suffering and overcomes it. Uh, Another kind of movie, superhero movies, can sometimes be frustrating to people. And one of the things that sometimes frustrates people is that the heroes can at times seem untouchable. Superman is the quintessential example, right? Because, I mean, he's Superman. Nothing can hurt him. The writers had to invent kryptonite to bring him down a little closer to our level. And if God is simply up in heaven, untouchable and unmoved, playing God, as we say, while the rest of us are down here suffering for his glory, something doesn't seem right. But of course, that's not the way it is. I mean, again, just look at our text. Jesus passes by and sees the blind man. He cares. He is moved to pity, to compassion. 
He deals with the disciples' misunderstanding. It's not the man or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed. And then Jesus does the work, right? He, he says, I am the light of the world. That's the second time he said that, by the way. He is the one who brings light and life. He is the source of life and understanding. He is the original, the original of which the sun is a pale shadow. Having said these things, he proves it. He spits on the ground. He makes some mud. He anoints the man's eyes. And here we have Jesus doing what God did at creation, taking some of the dust of the earth and making man. Except this time it's a new creation. Broken man is made whole. And he tells the man born blind to go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent, and he goes and he washes and he comes back seeing. Jesus demonstrates that he is the light of the world, that he is the author of life by bringing new life to this man born blind. This man's birth defect is an opportunity to display the works of God. Of course, this is not the end of the story. Jesus alludes to this in uh, verse 4. When he says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming when no one can work. As long as Jesus is there, it is, it is day. He is the light of the world. But night is coming. Jesus, as the light of the world, will not always be in the world. He keeps saying this in different ways throughout John's gospel. He is going to return to the Father. Jesus did not come just to live, but to die. Jesus comes to face darkness for us. The light of the world is, is put out at the cross, only to blaze again in the resurrection. God does not stand aloof in heaven while we are battered and bruised below. God comes to be battered and bruised in our place. Jesus does not come to accuse us of sin like the devil, but to die for sin that we might be forgiven, declared innocent and righteous in Jesus. Jesus' earthly work was time-bound. It had an expiration date. He has finished it in his death and resurrection and ascension. And now he pours his life, his love into us by his spirit. He makes us new in the present, opening our eyes to see him more. And he promises to make us new in the future on the last day when all things will become new. But this brings us back to the question of, is all this really necessary? Is suffering, trouble, pain necessary? Couldn't God have done it a, a different way? You might think, even if I buy that knowing God is my greatest good, did it have to happen this way? And there are a couple of answers to that question. The first is, only God knows. You and I, with our limited perspective, can't really answer that kind of question. Not fully. But we know that God is good and powerful and wise. He knows what's best for us. He wants what's best for us. He went to the cross to purchase what's best for us. Do you trust him? The second answer to that question, besides we don't know, and that which enables us to trust him is, of course, look to the cross. Jesus is God in the flesh, God incarnate. He came into this world for the very purpose of experiencing our pain, to suffer for our sin, to take on our guilt and our blame and bear the punishment that we deserve. He came to suffer, and, and not just any suffering, but to be forsaken by the Father. If our greatest good is to know God and his love, Jesus came to experience the greatest bad. 
to have the Father turn his back on the Son. While Jesus was hanging on the cross, that's exactly what the Father did. God the Father turned his back on his Son. That was the judicial punishment for sin. We turn away from God in our sin, so the Father turned away from Jesus on the cross. This is the greatest suffering known to man, and it is something really that none of us have ever experienced. God has fully and finally judicially abandoned no person on the planet. That is hell. And Jesus came to experience hell on the cross. You would think if there was another way, God would have done it. In fact, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before his crucifixion, prayed to the Father in Matthew 26, 39. He fell on his face and he prayed saying, My Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus said to the Father, if this isn't necessary, if there's any other way, let's do that. But the Son came to suffer, and suffer he did for us in our place. I can't explain every bad thing that is happening in life, yours or mine, except to say, trust the Father who has shown his love for you in the cross of his Son, God is not sitting up in heaven untouchable and immovable while we are battered and bruised for his name's sake. Rather, God came down in the person of Jesus, and he was battered and bruised, yes, for God's glory and for your joy, that you might be reconciled to the Father in Jesus and know his smile in Jesus and experience his inexplicable love in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would soften our hearts and open our eyes and enlighten our minds that, that we would come to know your love in Jesus and that that would be the answer to our great questions. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.